You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. On today's show, we're exploring the environmental implications of the emerging field of nanotechnology. We're talking to Louise Sales, who is the coordinator of Friends of the Earth Emerging Tech Project. We'll also hear from Mark Wisner, who is a professor of environmental engineering at Duke University in North Carolina in the United States, where he also directs the Center for Environmental Implications of Nanotechnology. I start off by asking, what is nanotechnology? It's small. Very small? Uh, Nanotechnology is manipulating... uh, uh, it has its origins in the manipulation of material at the, uh, the nanometric level, which is 10 to the minus 9 meters. So if you were flying across Australia looking down uh, on the ground, it would be sort of like looking for a grain of rice over the, uh, uh, the continent of, Aus- of Australia. Okay. And how big is that compared to, say, a, a human blood cell? Uh, well, a human blood cell would be roughly uh, 10,000 times bigger. So small. It's small. (laughs) Great. And uh, so what is nanotechnology used for? Uh, Well, it's appearing, I mean, it's it's really become integrated into all emerging technologies at this point. Um, You see it in biomedical applications. It's in virtually all the electronics that you use now. Uh, it's in agricultural applications, um, um, consumer products, uh, ranging from, uh, uh, creams, cosmetics, uh, um, sporting goods, uh, clothes, uh, it's, it's quite, <clears throat> um, uh, dispersed throughout virtually every element of our, uh, consumer, um, products and, uh, and and technologies. So a lot of strange things uh, happen when things are that small. Can you explain quantum mechanical effects? Well, quantum mechanical effects, I mean, a, an explanation of that is, is way beyond what we can do in a casual conversation. But I, I think your question really goes to what are the, um, uh, how do properties of materials change as they go down into the nanometric size? And so um, among those changes are um, availability or uh, the way that these materials present themselves to biological entities, uh, the uh, confinement of electrons uh, within smaller and smaller spaces, which gives them uh, different properties, the uh, way that uh, these materials interact with light, which can give them, for example, transparency. They can interact with with uh, uh, solutes in different fashions, uh, changing their absorptive properties or their, their, their magnetic properties. So there's a whole host of things that change with size. And I, the, the classic example is that of gold that's considered to be generally inert. If you take a, you know, a block of gold, we, we uh, might use gold to uh, fill teeth and so on because it's uh, 
of its inert properties. But as it becomes smaller and smaller, uh, in certain regards, it could actually become a catalyst at some point. This is Louise Sales from Friends of the Earth. I asked if she could talk about some of the potential environmental implications of nanotechnology. Well, I think nanotechnology, it's a bit of a double-edged sword um, because on the one hand, there's some really promising um, nanotechnology developments. Nanotechnology is being used to try and make solar cells more more efficient um, and and to make stronger, um, more flexible materials. Um, But on the other hand, we're seeing a large increase in the use of nanomaterials in consumer goods. Um, which are making their way into our soils, into into our air, into our water. Um, And there's a range of risks associated with that as well. So the very um, properties that make nanomaterials so attractive for scientists to use, like their increased reactivity, also poses major toxicity risks to the environment and to human health as well. Okay, can you explain about the increased reactivity, what that means? Yeah, so basically, because nanoparticles are so small, um, just in case people don't actually know what nanoparticles are, they're basically, um, the nanoscale is a billionth of a metre, so we're talking really, really tiny particles here. And nanoparticles, because they're so small, have got a much larger surface area, um, uh, compared to larger particles of the same substance, which makes them much more reactive. Um, So they're being used in things like catalysts, um, things like that. Um, But the fact that they're so small means that it's much easier for them to penetrate through cells, for example. It's been shown that nanomaterials can accumulate in organs. There's toxicity concerns associated with that. And one of our major concerns at Friends of the Earth is is that these risks haven't been properly managed by the government. So there's effectively no real regulation of, of nanotechnology, even though the UK Royal Society back in 2004 actually said these materials pose new risks. You can't assess the safety of nanomaterials based on the same substance at, at a larger scale, and we need to assess them as new chemicals. That's still there's there's some regulation in Europe, but in in Australia, these substances are effectively unregulated. So at the nanoscale, um, the same material can have different properties. Can you give some examples of that? Um, so, for example, um, gold is actually red at a nanoscale. Um, nanosilver, um, which is an anti, well, silver is antimicrobial, but actually nanosilver is much more anti, antimicrobial. So that's being increasingly used in like f- fabrics, um, f- um, ba- baby bottles, yeah, a whole range of different things to give them antimicrobial properties. And we're quite worried about that because... Um, it's actually increasing the risk of antimicrobial resistance, the fact that microbes are being ex- exposed to these in- these high levels of nanosilver in consumer products. So nanosilver is actually very useful in a medical sense. It's used in catheters and stents and things like that. And we'd really like to see um, nanosilver reserved for those important purposes rather than being used effectively as a gimmick in consumer products. I also read about um, with nanosilver in... Uh, consumer products like socks, you know, where they can reduce odor. Also, the nanosilver can wash out of the socks and go into the you know, into the water stream and then kill microbes, you know, very important microbes in the water stream. That's right. And it's also, nanosilver is also um, to- toxic to aquatic organisms like fish as well. Um, the other way that, the other place that nanosilver goes in the environment is that it 
it can leach out of products, as you say, in the washing machine and then go um, into sewage sludge, which is then applied to agricultural fields. And there was actually a German study that shows that nanosilver in in the soil can accumulate over time and, and potentially yeah, adversely affect soil health, so by killing off bacteria in the soil. Um, so that's a very very real risk. And yeah, a number of scientists have called for nanosilver not to be used in consumer products for that reason. Um, are there any other examples of nanotechnology threats that have come up? Well, carbon nanotubes is a big one, and that's... Um, Carbon nanotubes are like as like they're like asbestos um, in in terms of their shape and and um, single walled carbon nanotubes can pose similar risks and um, yeah there's been a lot of talk about their their potential the benefits of these um, chemicals but I'd take them with a pinch of salt because actually carbon nanotubes are also one of the most energy intensive forms of uh, nan of substances that there are for example it takes i think it's about 100 times more energy to make carbon nanotubes as it does to make steel um so arguing that oh we can use these to yeah create kind of stronger wind turbines and to yeah use them in solar cells you really need to look at the full energy cycle of these materials when you're assessing those claims and whether they're actually going to be useful and and also to look at well how do we di- dispose of these materials afterwards as well to make sure that we're not endangering the environment That was Louise Sales from Friends of the Earth. You're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. This is Mark Wisner, who is a professor of environmental engineering at Duke University in North Carolina, where he directs the Centre for the Environmental Implications of Nanotechnology. I asked him what kind of environmental threat might be posed by nanotechnology. Well, the original thought... um, uh, so whether or not nanotechnology is a threat to the environment is a, um, a bit of a loaded question mm-hmm. because the, uh, the, the term nanotechnology itself uh, really sort of represents a coalition of science, if you will. It's a term, it's a banner that groups a lot of different concepts from Everything from uh, chemistry and biology to ecology and uh, uh, and material science uh, underneath one banner, where we, we look at the 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 properties of things when they're small uh, and look at that in sort of a new light. And we've had all sorts of new technologies that have allowed us to um, really scrutinize what happens at that very small size. Uh, in a manner that's very that that's, uh, that wasn't available um, uh, 20, 30 years ago. So, um, as a a, a concept for uh, bringing together uh, science and doing really interesting science, nanotechnology is is a very powerful concept. As a uh, a label, however, for a class of emerging um, contaminants, as, as uh, some of us have thought of this at, at, at various times, uh, or as a, um, a class of materials, it's really much less interesting and, um, and actually is, is more of a barrier than a facilitator in trying to uh, make sense and provide safety uh, for some of these new materials. What the risks of nanomaterials are, it's a loaded question in the sense that um, 
you're really sort of asking, well, what's the risk of blue things? Or what is the risk of square things? Um, it uh, might be very interesting to look at all things that are blue or all things that are square from one perspective, but it doesn't necessarily help you organize things along the lines of what is risk. So it's almost been 20 years ago that um, I first asked uh, a question and uh, got some pushback from the nanochemistry community at that point. The question I asked, having presented um, uh, all the, the cool things that one could do with nanotechnology to improve the environment from um, you know, new energy technologies to new technologies for, for water treatment and pollution abatement, um, I sort of ended that talk um, and asked the question, so are carbon nanotubes, for example, the next best thing since sliced bread or the next asbestos? And nearly 20 years later, I can now tell you that it's not the next asbestos and um, that uh, nanomaterials um, do not, uh, as a class of materials, uh, present, um, in my way of thinking, a um, uh, an interesting fashion to, to sort of group toxicity. What we've learned is that if you make a nanoparticle out of something toxic, it will be toxic. So if you make nanoparticles out of known toxic materials like copper or silver or plutonium or uh, uh, any of the, the heavy metals, certainly you're going to end up with um, uh, a, a toxic particle. If you make something that looks like an asbestos fiber at the nanoscale, that has the, the potential uh, also to behave as a fibrous material would in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, inhalation toxicology. Um, but we haven't really seen, I would say, a nano effect in general where we say that things, if things just simply get small, they become toxic. And that was our that was our primary concern. I can tell you that the incentive to to find something toxic on our end is quite great. Just the way science works, um, if you find really terrible bad things, there's often more financing that comes along with your research down the line. Uh, but we really haven't found that. We found a lot of very interesting things going on in the role that nanoscale objects play. In, in science and ecology, but we uh, have not seen the, um, the looming menace of uh, nanomaterials in general as a toxic uh, a set of materials. So it's not a great organizing uh, concept for toxicity, I would suggest. Mm, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, basically, your job is to study the environmental effects of nanotechnology. So, you know, what have you found? Well, what we found is that um, uh, nanoscale phases or objects, they, they play an essential role in um, all sorts of uh, aspects of life science. We didn't know uh, that plants, for example, take up metals. Um, in the past, it was generally thought that metals were taken up by plants as, as ions in solution. Now we know that particles can actually be taken up by plants and translocated throughout the plant. And 
that is a process that uh, has no doubt gone on uh, since plants evolved. And, um, and so the, the importance of these nanoscale objects in transporting nutrients, in uh, probably also transporting all sorts of other things, proteins, genetic material, uh, uh, we have a much greater appreciation for that now than we did in the past. We know that these particles can move through ecosystems, so we can get trophic transfer. That is, it, uh, a, a, a bacterium might take up, might might have nanoparticles associated with it, which are taken up by, are eaten by a worm, and the worm can be eaten uh, by a frog, and and so on. And as it moves through that trophic chain, what we've observed is that these nanomaterials can actually move from one level of organisms to the next. And in some cases, that leads to what's called bioconcentration. It gets, per mass of the organism, it gets more and more concentrated. In other cases, it leads to biodilution. The mass becomes, uh, of, of nanoparticles becomes uh, uh, less compared with the mass of the organism. Mm -hmm. uh, we've found that some of these nano objects can be transferred from uh, uh, from uh, parent to uh, egg, for example. <clears throat> in a worm model that we looked at, there was maternal transfer into the egg sacs of uh, uh, the, the eggs of a silver nanoparticle. Um, so these things, you know, they have, they, they have a fair amount of mobility uh, in trophic systems. Um, they have somewhat less mobility just in general in the environment. That was Mark Wisner, professor at Duke University in the United States. I'm Corey Green, and you're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. Next up, we have Louise Sales from Friends of the Earth. I asked her about the end-of-life processes for nanotechnology. Well, from the studies, there's, there's, we, we still don't really have a... Um, good understanding of how many nanomaterials are even being used. So that's one of the things that Friends of the Earth has been calling for is uh, um, inventory so we can actually keep track of how many nanomaterials are being used, uh, nanomaterials register. So one country that does have that is, is France. And from their nanoregister, it's clear that there's about half a million tonnes of nanomaterials being produced per year just in France. Um, and that's being used... The largest sector is actually agriculture, so it's, they're using, being used in, in pesticides um, and agricultural chemicals. Um, there was a study that was done that showed that um, the majority of nanomaterials end up in landfill, um, those used in consumer... But they also end up in soil and they end up in water as well and, and air. So... We're really concerned that there's a complete absence of a regulatory regime for these chemicals in Australia. Um, so our chemical regulator, Nick Nass. Nick Nass stands for the National Industrial Chemicals Notification and Assessment Scheme. Has set up regulation for nanomaterials, nanoforms of new chemicals, but not existing chemicals. So that's a real gap um, that, that needs to be filled. And the same with our food regulator, Fazans. Um, Friends of the Earth over the past few years has been exposing that nanomaterials are actually quite widely used in food, but our regulator's response has been just to turn, turn a blind eye to it, unfortunately. It's going to be a, a, a pretty difficult challenge to try to recycle nanomaterials and many of the uses that we have for them. So 
Let me give you an example. I mean, one suggestion was early on that you could use nano iron to remove arsenic uh, from drinking water uh, because when you get down to a very small scale, it will uh, absorb 10 or more times as much arsenic per mass of iron than uh, iron would absorb, you know, in, in the larger scale. So um, that's attractive. Uh, the, the problem is, is that it's quite expensive to make the nano iron and you'd want to be able to reuse it. And the arsenic is stuck to the nano iron so well that it doesn't really want to come off. And so you can't really reuse that material um, economically. Um, many of the nano materials, uh, much of what we do at the nano scale is to create order in terms of... Um, size and shape and the process of recovering some of those materials uh, uh, may often lead to the destruction of that that sort of order so we might there might be some potential for recovering some of the elements the the strategic elements that make up some of these nanomaterials but um, uh, we don't we won't necessarily be able to recover uh, the actual nano object itself. The investments just in, in energy in particular, uh, I think, are going to be prohibitive. And not even recycling, but, you know, would you say that it would be quite hard to, to even uh, put nanotechnology in landfill once it's been, you know, released into the environment? Well, I think it's, it's easy to put nanotechnology in a landfill. We do that right now all the time. So... Um, nanomaterials are, uh, the landfills are probably one of the biggest sinks, one of the biggest repositories for used nanomaterials. And so then the question is, is what happens once it's down in the landfill? And I think basically at that point, many of these nanomaterials, um, uh, they're, they're bound up in objects and they're slowly released over time, not as nanomaterials, but often as you know, just dissolved metals and so on. So the, the problem you have is, is or the what you're trying to monitor at that point is not so much a nanomaterial, it's just the materials that were used to make up the nanomaterial. Could you talk more about ways that nanotechnology could be used to help the environment? Um, well, that's, that's how I initially came into this field in the 90s, was using nanomaterials to make membranes, for example, uh, for water treatment, water reuse, uh, pollution abatement. Um, there's also the notion of using nanomaterials as, as uh, adsorbents to um, remove specific contaminants, or nanomaterials as photocatalysts to break uh, contaminants down. There's all of the energy applications, uh, the, um, you know, our, our, our non-CO2 energy futures and non-nuclear futures are uh, basically nano futures. Uh, it involves making lighter, stronger um, uh, props for um, uh, wind generating um, uh, structures or making photocatalysts uh, 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 and photovoltaic material uh, for uh, harnessing uh, energy from the sun. So um, the, the, the implications through the energy route are going to be quite important. The implications through maintaining uh, or cleaning up water and air um, are also going to be quite important. 
Just thinking about some of the um, potential, uh, you know, future developments in nanotechnology, could you talk about um, the idea of uh, self-replicating nanotechnology? Yeah, self-replicating nanotechnology, um, when nanotechnology um, was first mooted as a concept, uh, it'd be a over a decade ago now, um, there was a lot of talk about self-replicating nanobots and grey goo and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nanobots taking over the world. And, and I think um, there was certainly a lot of excitement about that potential, but I think a lot of the scientists that were talking about that now have realised how, how difficult that, that would actually be, yeah, mm. be to do and they're distancing themselves from those claims. Um, I think... An emerging field that's, that's happening now is synthetic biology, and that's actually using living things as as basically uh, factories, like drug factories, so genetically modifying yeast to produce um, certain chemical, industrial chemicals that they want. And obviously Friends of the Earth is, is concerned about that as well because, I mean, yeasts occur everywhere. They occur in our body. We make beer from them, and the idea of producing industrial chemicals out of yeast is, is fairly frightening if it's going to escape from the lab. So mm. that's an area that that, yeah, Friends of the Earth is working on as well and we're concerned about. So some people have thought about nanotechnology being self-replicating. Is that a feasible idea? Well, there was a whole series of exchanges um, uh, back in the 90s on this between uh, Rick Smalley and and Eric Drexler. Um, uh, And uh, uh, the... I think Rick Smalley, a former colleague of mine when I was at Rice University, he he made the point that really just the energetics of reproduction would sort of doom most of these systems to wind down. Um, And that might very well be true. Uh, On the other hand, I mean, we've often said that if you want to see a great example of nanotechnology, look in the mirror. I mean, we're all composed of nano objects. We are nanotechnology ourselves. And um, uh, that's, you know, has a great potential for for uh, self-replication over at least a time frame, uh, even if we're winding down over the long term uh, within the short term, uh, an awful lot of change can occur to, uh, to, to ecosystems and habitat. And... Um, I understand that some scientists are looking into mimicking biological processes with nanotechnology. What would be the implications of that? Well, uh, the applications of nanotechnology to biomedical uh, situations, for example, are, are the first ones that come to mind. Um, you're, there's all sorts of things you'd like to do in mimicking the way cells uh, 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 interact with objects that they encounter that might allow you to, um, um, again, through biomimicry, create um, uh, drug delivery um, vehicles or to uh, create synthetic uh, antibodies or, you know, anything you can dream of that would uh, that nature has made, you make something like that that performs a specific function for you. One of the uh, applications that's received uh, is receiving a lot of attention right now is looking at the way that plants interact with uh, nanoparticles as a basis for, or, or just naturally occurring particles, as a basis for improving um, 
nutrient delivery to plants or pesticide delivery to plants. So you use less of the material um, uh, and still accomplish the same objective. Mm. And what sort of you know environmental implications could releasing something like that into the environment have? Well, I mean, these are the sorts of things that we've been studying uh, at the Center for the Environmental Applications and Nanotechnology for the last uh, uh, nine years. And um, again, the, the implications are that things can be taken up by organisms. They can move through trophic uh, change. So one organism can eat another organism and, and so on. Uh, so the, the implications are that these materials can and may be designed actually to move through those systems. The implications might also be that the environmental impacts of using pesticides and fertilizers are decreased or that the energy used uh, in applying those uh, materials is decreased. So um, you really have to kind of step back and look at the whole system, uh, what we call in a, in a life cycle analysis approach where you um, you say, you know, maybe I'm improving things over here by reducing the CO2 uh, footprint, but maybe I'm making things worse over here uh, by increasing uh, stress on a plant uh, that could uh, change its productivity. You're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. We're talking to Mark Wisner, Professor in Environmental Engineering at Duke University in the United States, and Louise Sales from Friends of the Earth about the environmental implications of nanotechnology. I asked Professor Wisner how he thought nanotechnology should be regulated. I don't think nanotechnology should be regulated. I think, it, as I said, I don't think it's a good um, label. It's not a useful label. Uh, for regulation. The European Commission has been trying to define what a nanomaterial is for years, and there's still not a satisfactory uh, definition. Lawyers are going to have a very hard time trying to define what a nanomaterial is. You make it, if you say it's everything from one to 100 nanometers, then, okay, let's make it 101 nanometers. Or what if you have a distribution of materials in there? Uh, and so on. And so it, it, it becomes, it's really just not a term that I think is useful for regulation. It's a great term for doing science. It's not a great term for regulation. What I have been pushing for is regulation that's based on um, very specific kinds of nanomaterials. So let's look at not just the nanomaterial itself, but let's look at what it does. So let's look at, for example, um, UV blocking materials. Some of those are nanomaterials. Some of them are organic molecules. Let's compare um, the risks and the benefits of nanomaterials, the organic molecules, and then in, in both cases, the, 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 the risks associated with not using either one uh, uh, in a sunscreen, for example. So, um, by looking at what the function of the material is and regulating based on, you know, is it a, a, a UV absorber? Is it a photocatalyst? Uh, does it have uh, properties of uh, strengthening materials? 
by looking at things in classes like that, I think it gives us much more uh, capability for being legally precise and also doing uh, what we'd like to do in, in toxicology is what's called read across. You'd like to look at one kind of material and say, what will this other material do that, that isn't on the market yet or that we're dreaming about in the laboratory uh, and uh, make some projections as to how it will perform compared with uh, some similar material that has already uh, been studied. So in that way, we can compare one photocatalyst with another. We can compare uh, one um, sector of materials with a, sp a specific function with the other materials that have that same function. We'd like to see nanomaterials assessed as as the UK Royal Society recommended as as new chemicals. So, and we don't believe that these materials should they shouldn't be in consumer products until they've been assessed to be safe. We don't think that's an unreasonable ask to assess a substance for safety before it's. Um, yeah, released into the into the food chain or into the environment, and um, unfortunately, the horse is really already bolted on this one. And we're we're seeing nanomaterials increasingly used in consumer products, um, but there's still no regulation around the risks. I had a look at your fact sheet about the regulation of nanotechnology, and I saw that maybe it was five different organisations in Australia are regulating nanotechnology. Does does that mean that they, you know, maybe there's overlap or there might be gaps in what they're regulating? Yeah, and there was actually some scientists from Monash University looked at it and identified a number of gaps in Australian regulation, and that was quite a few years ago now, and those have still to be to be filled. And yeah, it is quite a complex regulatory system that we've got. So we've got the ACCC supposedly regulating consumer products. So that would be things like yeah, nano silver in your socks. We've got Fazans regulating food, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicine Authority regulating pesticides and veterinary medicines. And then NICNAS is um, regulating industrial chemicals. So it's yeah, quite a complex regulatory space. And we would say that none of the regulators have really, you know, are really properly regulating nanomaterial use. And is there anything that um, we've learnt from the introduction of past technologies that might help with the introduction of nanotechnologies? Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, I think one of the, the government's claims, which we think is completely unfounded, is that, oh, if we regulate nanomaterials, then it will be a barrier to, to technology development and we don't want to stand in the way of technology development. But there was actually a couple of reports produced by the um, European Environment Agency, which which were called Late Lessons from Early late lessons from <laughs> early warnings. And and they reviewed a series of case studies, so everything from PCBs to asbestos, and they found that um, early intervention, early regulation actually isn't a barrier to trade at all. I mean, yeah, industry can, can work around these um, systems. And what, but what they did find again and again is that regulators ignored the war early warnings um, from things like PCBs and asbestos. And it took yeah, 20 years in many instances and uh, a lot of adverse impacts on the environment and human health before these um, chemicals were finally regulated. So they were arguing that we need a precautionary approach to new technologies and then they need to be yeah, properly regulated before they're released. So... In a way, would you say that this is, you know, the introduction of nanotechnology has been like a big experiment and we're the guinea pigs? Absolutely, yeah. And and it's 
yeah, it's frightening because it's being done on a global scale and we still don't fully understand um, the risks associated with, with these chemicals. So, for example, the US government actually yeah, com- commissioned a study and, and found that the research on the environmental and health and safety risks associated with nanomaterials is really lagging behind the research that's being done on development. So there's a very, very small percentage of the funds that are spent um, are actually spent on assessing potential risks. It, most of it's um, being spent on development of, of nanomaterials. And, and the same would certainly be true in Australia as well. Well, you know, actually, I would turn the question around um, because this is, this is just a fascinating uh, case study. This is the first time, to my knowledge, that we have, that the scientists were out of the gate before the technology was truly out of the, you know, out in in commerce, asking these questions um, uh, and pushing for the research to be done. And the research, now the technology has taken off. It's, uh, uh, as I said, it's, it's, it's virtually everywhere now. But we were very proactive, I think, in trying to address these issues early on. So the question I would ask is, what can we learn from nanotechnology, even if we think that as a class of materials, nanomaterials are not necessarily toxic? What are the lessons that we can learn in having studied nanotechnology that will uh, help us ensure that the next technology that presents itself is properly studied and uh, that we have some assurances that uh, it will be safe for human health and the environment, uh, and also provide people with with the the uh, assurance in that safety that uh, it's a fruitful area to invest in and have economic growth in. Great, thank you very much for appearing on the show. My pleasure. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Corey Green. Today we've been talking about the environmental implications of nanotechnology. That was Mark Wisner, who is a professor of environmental engineering at Duke University in North Carolina in the United States, where he also directs the Center for the Environmental Implications of Nanotechnology. To find out more, go to cent.duke.edu. We were also joined by Louise Sales, who is the coordinator of the Friends of the Earth Emerging Tech Project. To find out more, go to emergingtech.foe.org.au. If you missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone is 0394198377 and our email address is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to 3cr.org.au.